In therapy, radically genuine is reached when one is being truly authentic, communicating freely and openly as equals. The Radically Genuine podcast strives to do just that. We will question areas of mental health, culture, societal norms, and what is truly needed to improve the lives of others. Dr. Roger McFillin is a clinical psychologist and board certified in behavioral and cognitive psychology. He is the executive director of the Center for Integrated Behavioral Health in Bethlehem, Pennsylvania. We are at the beginning of a paradigm shift. It is through the efforts of many, education on the harmful effects of antidepressants is growing. Independent research, podcast conversations, and authors. On today's podcast, we welcome Beverly Thompson to discuss her examination on antidepressant harm and dependence in her book, Antidepressed. Welcome to the Radically Genuine Podcast. I'm Dr. Roger McFillin. For our fans out there, how about you take one second, pause this podcast, and click on five stars for us on, on Apple. There you go, mom. Come on, mom. <laughs> Mom's our fan. <laughs> now, we know from our numbers that there's a lot of people out there who are uh, fans of the topics, and uh, we do we do bring in topics that are outside the mainstream and people are interested in hearing more about our perspectives and the perspectives of our guests. So please, that's important. If we can get more five stars out there, we'd, we'd love that. And please visit our website, rad de, radgen.com. Radgenpod.com. Jeez, oh, I always got the wrong. <laughs> radgenpod.com. And you can contact us there. We've been getting some emails from guests with interesting thoughts on future topics and we really do appreciate that and it's it's really assisted me getting out to talking to some other people out there who are experts outside of areas that i have studied and that's really important for us to bring on guests who have expertise in in specific areas definitely guys welcome back kelly we missed you last week hey i had to go on vacation again It's my third time. Wow. The life of the life of a teacher. The life of a you know, teacher, you, I'll tell with, you. With your summers off. It's just so easy. <laughs> I wouldn't say easy. Maybe you need those breaks more than others. I would know. They're well earned. <laughs> well, we're glad to have you back. It was an interesting podcast last week because we were talking about the umbrella review study on serotonin and its association with depression. So fortuitous guest that we have today mm. in the same uh, same realm in the same area. Our guest today is Beverly Thompson. She's a researcher, author, mental health advocate with expertise in understanding the adverse effects of antidepressants, including antidepressant-induced suicide amongst young people. Beverly has worked with the British Medical Association, the Scottish Government, and the UK Council for Evidence-Based Psychiatry. We just got finished with her book. She's the author of Antidepressed, a breakthrough examination of epidemic antidepressant harm and dependence. Beverly, welcome to the Radically Genuine podcast. Thank you for inviting me to be here. There you are. <laughs> from, uh, from the Scottish Highlands. Yes, he's back. Um, listen, congratulations on the book. It's, it's an outstanding resource, but I am really interested to know how you got focused and interested in this particular area. Yeah, it's a really, really interesting story from the point of view. I'm probably not what you would expect, and my experience isn't probably what you would expect. So I'm actually a graduate in marketing and languages. Um, and then um, I moved to the Highlands of Scotland and couldn't really find a job. So I decided to to do open university psychology. And um, I went to work as a counsellor in schools. So I worked in primary and secondary schools. And I think about 15 years ago, I also, I can't exactly remember, I started to, to notice that so much was changing in, in terms of the way that we were actually um, speaking about children and their behavior. And, and I started to notice that, it, you know, a lot of the problems, the societal problems they had and the school problems that they had, we were actually blaming them. You know, the language started to be that we were blaming the children for not being able to cope with their lives. And I started to notice, you know, the terms were being brought in like, you know, I think he or she has ADHD or I think there's something wrong with him. And it kind of sparked something in me. And I 
started to think to myself, I don't think this is right. I don't think this should be happening. I don't think we should be blaming children for not being able to cope, which was, you know, sometimes these were very, very difficult circumstances that children were finding themselves in. Um, so I started to research. I started to become in, interested in sort of the wider aspect of the state of our mental health. And um, yeah, I met James Davis, who I'm sure you've probably interviewed or know. Um, I did some work for KEP um, when they first launched and um, became, I have to say, slightly obsessed with the topic. Mm -hmm. uh, <laughs> yeah, it's very easy, isn't it? It's very easy to become obsessed with this subject. Um, and from there, I've always loved writing. Uh, I've always loved reading. And um, I thought to myself, I'm going to write a book about this. Well, we're glad that you did. Uh, it, it's actually very easy to read and there's tons of resources. So for those who are, are parents or who are or currently on antidepressants or more importantly, professionals out in the field, I really do recommend this as a, a frontline uh, resource to understand the actual science and what can happen when you start taking antidepressants, specifically what can happen when you start taking it for an extended period of time. You were saying you were talking about the the course of your career, where I've kind of witnessed the same thing uh, with the narrative change around emotional struggles. Somewhere along the line, we started talking about our emotional struggles from something that was a very normal aspect of kind of growth and ev evolution in life, with practical strategies and you know centuries of wisdom to speaking about it as if it was some disease that somebody caught, um, you know, my depression and my ADHD and that's that you're inflicted with and potentially like this disease is something that you'd be inflicted with for the rest of your life. How did we get here? Well, how did we get here? Haven't we been gullible? <laughs> really, when you when you think about it, I mean, a gullible society. I think we are definitely. You know, one of the things is that we have just bought into it hook, line, and sinker. I mean, how can we have been a society where we have come to rely on serious, powerful, psychoactive drugs and not question it? How 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 have we become a society where we've allowed ourselves to do that? I think, a great question. Yeah, I, I think we had a discussion on bias at one point, and this is purely an example of uh, or th authority bias. Am I right? I it's just you have someone who the perceived knowledge is they know more about this than you do, so you trust them. Mm. Um, and even yeah. doctors trust the um, the pharmaceutical company that spent millions of dollars to develop a quote unquote solution. So they trust the literature that's provided to them. And then they spew it out to their, uh, their clients when they come in and they believe it to be true. Multiple authorities. Yeah, ab absolutely. And, and I think, you know, one of the things that we have to think about in years gone by, you know, we all believed that doctor knows best. And that was something, you know, maybe in the 1960s and 1970s was acceptable. But we're consumers of these drugs. We live in a society where we do three billion Google searches a day. <laughs> how, can not, how can we not accept that we need to be better informed about these powerful drugs that we take? How have we allowed that to happen? I mean, it's a great question. One of the things in your book that and we've discussed quite a bit is the chemical imbalance myth. And in your book, at one point, you, um, you point out how psychotropic drugs work, you explain how they work, and you state that they actually do not cure a non-existing chemical imbalance, rather they create one which affects people mental, mentally and physically. Many of those are unpredictable. I mean, is that an accurate interpretation of, of what I read? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, we now we now know that. I mean, by the way, the, you know what we what we've heard recently was it was an excellent umbrella study, excellent study. But this is not new. I mean, if we go back to and somebody I love quoting, you know, if we go back to, I think um, I think it was nineteen eighty eight, 
when um oh no i think it was 1996 actually the the stephen hyman who was the um director at the nimh yeah you know he talked about these psychiatric drugs then and you know he talked about how they have neural uh, our normal neurotransmitter activity. He talked about how they quantitatively and qualitatively change our brain. So we've known this for a very, very long time. You know, this isn't new. We have known it. And I think I wrote a paper back in 2014, which talked about the myth of the chemical imbalance. And yes, they, 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 they don't cure our chemical imbalance. They alter us, they change us, they change every aspect or have potential to change every single aspect of our being. Let's get into the nitty gritty. I think a lot of people who are listening to the podcast want to know some specific details about antidepressants. I, I have a story. I remember uh, a friend of mine in college, and I was in college in the late 1990s, um, was prescribed an antidepressant drug and he found himself wandering in the middle of the city, not knowing how he got there. And we've also had on our podcast um, a, a father who in, in experienced uh, akathasia-induced homicidal ideation. So those are some of the extreme aspects of, of taking a drug and it, it impacting everybody differently. But let's. what are the dangers of antidepressants in your research what are we actually um, observing in both clinical practice and um, anything that we know from research trials okay well first two things i have to say is that nobody knows how an antidepressant will affect you so everybody can be affected in a to in an in a unique way so there is no predictables here. There are no predictables. There is no way anybody can say, okay, take this antidepressant at this particular dose and this is what will happen to you, okay? It's a bit of a Russian roulette in some ways. You know, some people some people manage fine and some people don't. So that's, that's really the first thing that I have to say. The other thing that I have to, to say in terms of, you know, what we actually know about whether it be adverse effects or long-term effects, is really mostly from anecdotal evidence. That's, you know, that's where we're getting the true information from. You know, these people that have been on these drugs for 30 years who are now having horrendous, heartbreaking experiences um, and are suffering, really suffering because of these drugs. We don't have, we need, vitally need independent research and I'm sure you'll agree with me there you know that's one thing that we desperately need but we really have very little research in terms of of what is happening to people but we know some of the effects the effects can be incredibly varied but they can be serious life changing life altering and sometimes fatal I think what's most concerning to me is how physicians communicate them to patients and families as if they're rather benign. Um, there's, there's no, they, we don't talk about dependence and they think they, they speak with their clients mostly in terms of the potential benefits and really minimize any potential risks. In fact, almost speaking as if those risks are quite rare and quite mild. Yeah. And yeah, Beverly, I'm, I'm assuming that the reason they speak about the drugs in this way is because that's what's communicated to them through pharmaceutical marketers. Is that your impression as well? Yeah, absolutely. And I think even though most doctors are beginning to realize that a lot of the, the, um, a lot of the um, adverse effects that patients come back to them and tell them about are because of the drugs that they, they still don't inform patients as they should about the adverse effects. Shall I read the John Reed study in 2018? Because that might be, yeah. So um, there was a 2018 study, which I have in my book, and it asking people directly reveals far higher rates of adverse responses to antidepressants than previously understood especially in the emotional, psychological, and interpersonal domains. 
So this online survey looked at um, 1,431 people in 38 countries. So when, when you listen to these statistics, I mean, this just really, really tells you about how serious some of these effects are. So feeling emotionally numb, 70.6%. Feeling foggy or detached, 70%. Feeling not like myself, 66%. Sexual difficulties, 66%. Drowsiness, 62%. Reduction in positive feelings, 60.4%. You know, uh, distorted dreams, 59%. Um, suicidality, 50.3%. Half the people who, who in, this, in this survey said that they had some form of suicidality. I mean, it, this is crazy, isn't it? It is crazy. And I, I mean, I've mentioned this. I actually had gone to a doctor young when I was young, and I was, um, I was diagnosed within 15 minutes. And I remember now when we were asking, well, are there, my mom was with me, and she asked, is this um, something that he'll have to be on for the rest of his life? Is, is it okay? It was, it was very dismissive. Like everybody's doing it. It's okay. It's kind of like, you know, he'll be fine. There were no, we were not given any type of um, chance to just think about it or go home, take a month or two. And, you know, if things don't get better, we were just told, this is your solution. Here you go. I was fortunate to not, you know, to not stay on it. I, I was on for a very short period of time, but in that short period of time, I can tell you, I experienced several of what you just said. Yeah, absolutely. And, 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 and that is, you know, that is so typical because um, it's not until things start to go wrong that people start to question. But why do we wait until it's too late and things start to go wrong and we start to have these adverse effects that we start to question the drugs? Shouldn't we, we be questioning them from the beginning before There's no doubt. we even take them? In the United States here, and, and we're, on the, we're working with parents who have uh, kids who are struggling with depression, anxiety, and uh, self-injury or suicidal thoughts, and one of the feedback that we're getting from parents is that they feel almost guilted into the prescription from prescribers as if yeah. it is a, the frontline treatment and the most effective treatment for developing teenagers and and young adults universally I'm, I'm parents are kind of saying we would they make us feel like we're a bad parent if we do not follow medical advice but yet you're you have a chapter a special chapter on this for young people and it is so clear and i've done my obsessive research as well that we don't have really any data that suggests that these psychiatric drugs, these SSRIs, have any positive impact and almost overwhelming evidence that suggests that they can and will create harm. Absolutely. Absolutely. And I think the thing that we have to think about, especially with um, with children, you know, with children, is it's a moral issue, isn't it? We we have already said that these these drugs change your brain. They change the structure of your brain. Who has the right to do that to their child? Who has the right to change their child's brain? Yeah, I don't. I I, I don't understand that. I I guess I agree with with Roger. I think based off of the experience that I had, it's almost as if a parent may not be able to have enough to stand up for themselves at the very moment that they are told this is the only solution. And I think that, yeah, and I, yeah, go yeah. ahead. Sorry. And I was saying, if you think about it from, from a cultural perspective, they've already, parents have already bought into this idea that, you know, here's a drug and the drug will fix you. So it's the first thing that they're going to do. They haven't questioned it for themselves. So why are they going to question it for mm. their child? So uh, Beverly, one of the um, 
the areas, and I think we're touching on the fact that a lot of parents just don't understand, right? They trust their doctors. In terms of the research that you've done and some of the resource you provided um, in the back of your book, what are um, what do you feel is the most appropriate place to send a parent who at this point might be considering or it's maybe being forced upon them where they can go and really just get a non-judgmental view of what others are seeing out there that they can read themselves? Yeah, it's difficult, isn't it? Yes, it um, is. It's really difficult because we, we, we have to, one of the things that we have to take into account is, uh, and for you, it's even more difficult because you have pharma advertising on your TV screen mm. every how many seconds of the day. Um, but, you know, it, it, it's really hard to find information that you can, reliable information you can trust without it being biased. Because everyone who they will meet, whether it be in an educational environment, whether it be, you know, their friends, whether it will have already bought into this notion. So, you know, what Roger and I are trying to do, and we're trying to change this concept, we're trying to change, but this is not easy. This is not easy. And and I hope that my book, which I did try to write in an accessible way, and I didn't try, I didn't use med- medical language or academic language. So I really hope it will be, um, you know, a starting point, and other people will write similar books mm-hmm. too that that can really help people. I'm I'm hoping that education will be a place where we really start to see see this changing, but. You know, I'm in the Highlands of Scotland, and I think it's very different where you are. You know, we're bombarded with messages, aren't we, on social media and in the media about our mental health, about it deserving parity with our physical health, and you have a right to take a drug if you want to. Yeah. How we're going to change it? That's. We're going to try. I'm sure we're going to try, but. And I, I. Getting conversations like this out is one step, but you're right. There's an enormous amount of advertising, especially for all these new um, app solutions where someone can immediately go and answer a few questions and get access to an, an antidepressant medication through the mail. It's To me, I interpret it as if the, um, the medical community and a lot of doctors are becoming more aware of the long-term effects and the side effects and the harm that's being done that one way to get around that is to remove the doctors from the process and just go direct to consumer, which is, uh, yeah. to me, uh, going to be a whole nother level of, of awareness that needs to get out there. Yeah. I think, I think one of the problems in terms of children that I really, really, I'm so worried about is, you know, a lot of children are now put on these drugs at such a young age and when they become adults, they're already dependent on these drugs. You know, and if they don't have the knowledge about these drugs and the information that they shouldn't stop these drugs suddenly or, you know, they need to be informed about the harms that they can do, we are seeing, and I have the, you know, the evidence of it, we're seeing the suicide rates, for example, in universities rocket. And that's because the kids on these drugs, you know, move away from the security of their parents, their usual prescriber, their they go away to university, they go, I don't need this drug. And they stop taking it. Yeah. This is dangerous. Yeah, this is a good direction to get into because we are seeing these increasing rates of suicide events. And many people are attributing that to a need for uh, mental health intervention, <laughs> which is more psychiatric drugs. And they're, they're unknowingly um, you know, making comments that... Uh, you know, when one stops their drug, it is as there is evidence that that mental health condition is returning, that depression is returning. What do we expect to happen if somebody abruptly stops taking psychiatric drugs that they were prescribed? No one should ever abruptly stop taking psychiatric drugs unless it's on the advice of a GP and there is specific reason for it. But so if we look at what happens when we take these drugs, so we have a normal normal balanced state without the drug. And as soon as we t- start to take the drug, um, as we've said, these drugs act on our brain chemistry and our normal state is becomes different. So we eventually, if we take these drugs for a p- period of time, 
we achieve a new balanced state, okay? Might not be a great balanced state, it might be one with adverse effects, it might be, but we achieve a new balanced state. So as soon as you reduce or stop taking these drugs, especially if you do it abruptly, this balanced state becomes very unbalanced. And that can be psychologically and it can be physiologically as well. So this is why we have such increasing cases of akathisia, because people are stopping these drugs so suddenly and becoming so unbalanced. And this is really, really incredibly dangerous. And it's something that I think akathisia is the one thing that in particular we need more people to understand. I was going to ask you, can you discuss a little bit? Because in your book you have you have a pretty big section of it and then you also describe the four, there are four types. Can you tell us a little bit about that? Yeah, so akathisia is a neurological drug-induced condition and it's not just antidepressants. There are other drugs that can induce this state. So... Um, I think I describe it, and a lot of people have said to me, we, we jokingly say sometimes, I'm losing my mind. But these people literally lose their mind, and they lose control of their mind. So they have constant intrusive thoughts. And it's really interesting and really quite heartbreaking that most of these thoughts that these people have really funny though isn't it they don't have happy thoughts they don't go and lie on a beach so to have thoughts of lying on the beach somewhere or you know <sighs> going to their favorite restaurant or they have thoughts of the most two common ones are they have either thoughts of killing themselves or they have thoughts of killing someone else and those, akathisia, those are the two most constant thoughts. And people end up killing themselves um, when they have akathisia. In, there are two different ways. So the first is they have such, such incredibly awful um, symptoms, whether that be restless, restlessness or agitation or uh, pain, or that they literally can't stand them anymore. And they choose to kill themselves. And the second one is, is it, it's not so much that they choose to kill themselves, actually fight to stay alive. But these intrusive voices, these intrusive voices get to the point where they actually give in to the voices that is the, to the voice that is telling them to kill themselves. And I think the challenge, especially with young people, is they're not always the most disciplined of, of people. So it's very easy to, to miss a dose. Or if you're at university and you start, uh, you know, partying or drinking alcohol or you have some sleep disruption, there's, we see then that those severe adverse consequences can occur. In younger people like high school students, and I hear this quite frequently, um, if, they, if they miss a dose or... Um, you know, they've been, they've been ill or sick and they stopped taking it for a couple of days. The reaction to those drugs, it can be so severe that, yep. that their parents actually believe that that is evidence of a chemical imbalance that requires the drug for, for life. And they do not understand that the drug itself and, or in the withdrawal effect of that drug creates those exact symptoms. I wanted to bring up, um, the, the TADS study, because it is frontline care here in the United States that when a teenager is experiencing suicidal ideation, and that could just be thoughts or it could be self-injury, and they are admitted into a psychiatric hospital or they're in some form of outpatient treatment, it is believed that an antidepressant should be a frontline treatment for such a condition. What does the science and what does our research say? You talked about the TADS study. Oh, God, I, I can't even, this is really, you've got caught me off guard here. I should have, I should actually know this, but I think the, the thing that we can take from it is that in real life patients, as opposed to the research um, participants, the, ad, the, the adverse effects were much more frequent, much more serious, and much more long-lasting than they were in, in the research um yeah, I do. I have some data on this. Yeah, I just pulled it up too. So you go ahead, Raj. 22% of adolescents on an SSRI had a suicide event 
compared to 6.7% of those not taking the drug. Yeah. We also yeah. know in short-term pharma clinical trials, um, teens on the drugs were more than twice as likely to become suicidal yeah. compared to placebo. Yeah. So here we are. Yeah. Um, we actually see in clinical practice that doctors are prescribing a drug that's going to increase suicidality. And at this point, isn't it, can't we just say that evidence-based mental health care is just a myth? It's an absolute myth, an absolute myth. And you know, everyone, and, and, and I say everyone, and that's a big statement, but just about everyone who ends up in some kind of clinic setting for their mental health will be prescribed more drugs. It goes without saying. There are never solutions that don't involve drugs or very rarely solutions that don't involve drugs. And, and that's so sad, isn't it? It's very sad. In your opinion, should children or adolescents um, be prescribed antidepressants in any circumstances? I mean, we do have to shift the conversation to any perceived benefits. But in your opinion, um, is there any situation where young people should be taking antidepressants? Well, I can. I think I can only speak about that from my my personal view as a mother. Would I give my child antidepressants? Never. Never. No. And 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 I suppose you know you can think about it from the perspective that you know I know a lot more about these drugs than most people and have heard a lot more you know experiences of young people who have taken these drugs. But would I give my child antidepressants? Never. Beverly, I feel obligated to ask, had you not done this research and written this book and grew interested in the subject and some and your child was struggling, would your approach have been the same or do you feel like you're just more aware and more knowledgeable now? Um, I think um, I, I don't think I would have ever medicated my child, to be honest. Okay. Um I have always been, um, my personal approach has, I have always taught my child to speak, to talk about what's going wrong, to, to make you, help him understand that life changes very quickly, especially for young people. And what, what is happening, you know, this week might have changed in a month's time and normally things move very quickly. So I don't think I would have, to be honest. Okay. Dr. Joanna Moncrief spoke about uh, the perceived benefits of antidepressant use, uh, and she blogged about it. Um, I think the primary one is, is optimism or hope. So it's the idea that taking a drug in itself, if you are really suffering, can provide that placebo response. And I think the second one that she generally speaks about is the emotional numbing or blunting of, of the drug can for yeah. a small percentage of people be interpreted as uh, something that is actually relieving or positive. And so I just imagine that there are some people who are in such intense negative pain that some form of emotional blunting might be interpreted as, as helpful. But, but then again, when we look at the adverse consequences, the question is always, well, for how long? Because the brain's going to eventually adapt, as you well said. And then what are the, um, you know, the potential long-term effects of, of such a decision? Yeah. Well, first of all, um, you know, I never say... It, I, I never say that people shouldn't take these drugs. It's everyone's right to take these drugs. If they choose to, that is entirely up to them. But what I do so it, say is everybody should be informed about these drugs, which is slightly different. Um, okay, let's address one. one first. We'll, do, we'll address the placebo effect first, you know. I suppose the question is, you know, is, is the placebo effect, is that justification for taking powerful psychoactive drugs? In my opinion, probably not. Um, these powerful drugs also, if you think about it, can no one knows how long it takes for somebody to become dependent on these drugs. So if you choose to take these because um, they have a numbing effect and might help you in a few months, you know, over a few months or, again, is it worth the risk? I don't think it is, personally, to be honest. You know, I had a, a an interesting conversation with Nick Fortino recently about this. And, you know, 
there are lots of other things that 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 we can do to to help ourselves through very difficult times and to me taking psychotropic psychoactive powerful drugs is not the answer so you're a huge proponent of people giving themselves a lot of time to heal naturally and for that to happen they would need to alter some of their life activities um as a teacher and in this kind of system that we have, at least in the U.S., a lot of a lot of students over the course of years I've, I've seen go through, they've gotten their diagnoses, they've gone on medication. Parents have then, um, when the medications either didn't work or they started to see those kind of side effects, then they went into another medication and so on. And I feel like that just I was when I was reading your book, I'm like, you know, we if you allow people time to heal, they're going to have to make some changes in their lives. And in young kids and students, high school students in particular, they don't have the capability to make changes because the system doesn't allow them to make any changes. Yeah. So they struggle yeah. and have to enter that same environment day after day. And it's extremely difficult for them to make any you know, real change that could actually help them mentally. What do you say to those parents, who's, those students who believe they've exhausted the weight and, and then they're like, this is the only thing we can do is turn to medication? Well, first of all, I'm not a psychologist, so you know I, I can't give advice as to what, what I what I personally think that that should they should do. But you know, there's a study in my book. I think it was 2006, Brown University, that that that, that looked at the fact that you know 85% of people recover who have a dep depressive episode recover within one year without any treatment whatsoever. So. I think for children, yes, it is more difficult because the social circumstances that they find themselves are tough. It's tough for kids nowadays, mm. isn't it? Oh, absolutely. It's not easy. It's tough. You know, there is no getting away from it. But it's like we were talking about before. Unless the system changes, then how are we going to help these kids? Haven't we altered our understanding of what depression is? If you look historically... Uh, depression as a, as a really severe impairing condition was quite rare. And in actuality, almost everybody is going to go through something in their lifetime in some episode. But now we're describing the normal ranges of adversity as a medical illness. And really, it's yeah. kind of industry-driven and it's, it's media-driven. Hasn't that altered the way that we we think about our own struggles over the normal course of a lifetime? Absolutely. Well, we only have to listen to children and young people when they talk on TV and the language that they now use. I mean, if you listen to children talking on TV, how often do they use the word anxiety? I'm anxious. How often do they use the word, I think I'm depressed. I think I had a panic attack. I think this has just become part of their life that they accept is going to happen to them. But to be honest, you know, how are we going to change that? Because we're fighting so many, we're fighting the media, that's for sure. We're absolutely fighting the media. And this is a political issue, isn't it? You know, kids live with homelessness, they live with poverty, they live with parents who are unemployed, parents who take drugs, and it's hard for them. It's very good telling a child to, to be resilient, but in lots of circumstances, I used to teach a program called Resilient Kids. And I remember I was in a, a classroom with, um, you know, I think there were eight, seven, eight-year-olds, and I was talking about resilience and how they needed to be resilient and how they... And then I was driving home after I taught this class and um, I started to cry. And I thought to myself... I have just been telling a child who I know is going home, who I know there is heroin in the house, who I know has no food, who I know won't get breakfast tomorrow before they come. I have just been telling her to be resilient. Mm. How can I do that? Mm. How do I have the right to do that? So these are these are these are political issues, and you know it's great for, for you know for the politicians to say, oh well, it's their mental health. It's, but actually, it's not. It's all the societal things that they should be addressing and fixing to make us happier. Mm. Beverly, um, how many children did you raise? One. You have one. <laughs> so tell me, and you taught this class also. 
How do you raise yeah. a resilient child? Uh, well, I think I was very lucky in that I had a child who was very sporty. Mm-hmm. He was quite a talented soccer player. Um, and he was very active and he was very fit and he loved being outdoors and he hated reading, by the way, but he loved kicking a football around. Um, and, and I think I was just fortunate that I didn't have a child who really ever had any issues with friendships or with, but it, I was lucky. I was fortunate. I really was. And this isn't the norm. This really isn't the norm. I think when you speak about that child who has to go home into a, an environment, maybe it's a broken home or there's, you know, there's drug addiction or the, there's violence. It's the community supports. It's that school system. It's people who take an interest in that person who show that, that child some love and support and encouragement. Yeah. And when we start labeling kids like that as ADHD or that they have depression then we start medicalizing and drugging normal and expected reactions to adverse conditions. And that's really the disappointing yeah. thing that's kind of evolved in, in our society. Cause if we're going to be, if we're going to be better as a community, if we're going to be better as healthcare professionals, that we have to understand what is the normal and expected reactions to adverse conditions and not medicalize those responses, but yet know how to support them, nurture them. And then ultimately, yes then build those those skills in resilience when they get of an age where they have more independence. Yeah, absolutely. I totally agree. But, you know, and, and I'm I, I, as much as we can, we need to support children. And some of the programs that, you know, are put into schools are fantastic programs, but they don't work for every child. They really don't work for every child. And we need a more personalized approach for, for children who really are going through difficulties. We have a different medical system here in the United States. Um, the UK, from what I understand, is, is more of a universal healthcare system. So the government is much more involved um, in the treatment of, of their citizens. You have worked with uh, the Scottish government. Um, I think you've also like, consulted or worked with the UK Council for Evidence-Based Psychiatry, the British Medical Association. I am fascinatingly curious about um, how medical professionals and government view psychiatric drugs uh, in your region. Oh, in my region? Well, in Scotland, we have the highest antidepressant prescribing rates in the UK. I was on a, a news and culture program recently because the media here are so concerned about the overprescribing of young people over prescribing of antidepressants to young people in Scotland. And this, as you just said, is a political decision. So we started a, a petition in Scotland, I think it was in 2017, and we asked the Scottish government, I think it's the first one that's ever been done, actually. Um, we asked the Scottish government to, to look at how they can help people who have been harmed by or are dependent on uh, prescribed medication. I sat on a strategic, um, a strategy group for, gave lots of my time and did so much work. And guess what happened? Nothing. Mm-hmm. Nothing. Absolutely nothing. Why do you think that is? And we, because it suits, doesn't it? The status quo suits. You know, it, isn't it easier to give a prescription than to try and invest in, you know, the ways that we can actually help young people nowadays. It's just easier still to let people believe that it's their fault, there's something wrong with them, it's their brain that's broken and it's not the system. I feel like the uh, the campaign we need is just to empower parents to say the word no. You go to a doctor Absolutely. and a doctor is starting to say these things. The parent's first response has to be no, there has to be something else. Well, we've talked about this in our podcast. I don't know if you're aware of this, Beverly. In the United States, our hospital systems, which pretty much own all our primary care uh, doctors and the primary care facilities in our regions, they are mandating 
administration of screening measures, and they usually very poorly constructed screening measures like the PHQ-9. And so each doctor is mandated to provide this to children, adolescents, and even adults as a screening measure, which is highly sensitive, and it's going to overdiagnose most people with clinical depression. And that then opens the, the, the pathway to a prescription drug. So I know on social media myself, I've been outspoken, resist taking these screening measures. Parents, do not let your kids take these screening measures. My goodness, trust yourself. You're going to know if your kid is really, really struggling. And then you have to trust your own instinct about what your, your kid would need. Mm-hmm. Yeah, absolutely. But, you know, and, and if, if if we could educate parents about what these drugs actually do and they knew about the harms that they could cause, then they would they would be they would be thinking twice about giving children these drugs. Let's let's not, you know, life's hard for parents some parents too, isn't it? It's it's not easy, but drugging children is not the answer. And these screen we're starting to actually introduce screening programs as well in some parts of the UK. And, you know, we're told to... The problem is that I think a lot of the time screening is done really subconsciously, especially by prescribers. You know, they don't actually get the screen out. They, You know, they don't actually get the GAD7 or the PHQ-9 out and they don't ask you specific questions, but they're programmed to do it. Mm-hmm. Yeah, there's no doubt. They're programmed to do it. There's a great quote that begins one of the chapters and it ends with this. Everybody who made the commercial, because it was talk, you were talking about big pharma and commercials and advertisements has a financial interest in your future behavior. And that is so telling. And I wish more people would understand that part of this narrative that we've now seen for the last 30, 40 years. It's funny because our government officials here are constantly highlighting things like it's National Mental Health Month. You know, we have a mental health crisis, but the one thing that they could probably do right now to improve everyone's mental health is to put a ban on advertising of these of these drugs. Would you agree with that? Yeah, I mean, yeah, absolutely. You know, taking medica- these these drugs and medication, this medication isn't keeping us healthy. It's not keeping us healthy. It's making our society sicker. And I think, you know, Roger, I don't know whether you've spoken to it. Um, um, and, you know... Um, he he's spoken for a long time about the fact that you know mental health messages are making us sicker they really are making us sicker as a society we need to change the narrative don't we absolutely we certainly do and i'd like to come up with some you know helpful solutions for that for that next step um one of the things that's really important when we talk about messaging around mental health is the more that you are focused and attentive on your internal experience and the judgment of that, in everything that I understand about emotion regulation, the judgment, the invalidation, and the distortion of our internal experience creates much more distress. So although we have all these decreased stigma campaigns and you must focus on your mental health, Everything I know about creating a life worth living and dealing with the complex emotions that we have is to direct our attention outward, away from ourselves, into our world. You spoke about your son and and with football and athletics and connection with nature, whether that's with relationships that we nurture and our health. It's getting back to developing a purpose in our lives. The more you focus on yourself, the more miserable you're going to be. Yeah, you talked about there, you know, and I don't know you talk a lot about, you know, having a life worth living and having a, well, these drugs aren't giving most people who take them a life worth living. Um, And um, for many people, they're just the start of many problems. I mean, I talk a lot in my book about, you know, medically unexplained symptoms and people then being given further diagnoses and then people being drugged further, you know, just, just. Five minutes in a prescriber's office can be the start as a, as a lifelong psychiatric patient. Five minutes for something that is, you know, you lost your job, your girlfriend left you, you know, you can be the start of a journey as a lifelong psychiatric patient. And this is sad. This is really sad. 
unfortunately, these drugs are being more widely prescribed to conditions that they weren't even initially evaluated for. Chronic pain yeah. is, is an example. Uh, anorexia, where we know the food is the actual medicine. Uh, binge eating, there's drugs being provided for. To the uh, elderly in, um, in homes or just for being lonely. Now they're putting people on, on prescription drugs. Yeah. Loneliness is, you know, an epidemic. It really is an epidemic. And, you know, it's so easy to drug, especially the elderly, when it comes to when they, when they are lonely. And um, it's so sad, really, isn't it, that we aren't giving the elderly the the passion and the compassion and the what they deserve. Instead, we're drugging them. We're drugging them. Yeah, I realize the simple thing you it's can sad. do for anyone who's who's older is just sit down with them and have a conversation. I could sit down with my grandfather who's now going to be turning 94 years old and he could talk and talk and talk. And that would make his day is to just tell you the stories and the wisdom that he accumulated through all those years. And, you know, you, you get a lot out of it yourself too. Or just even opening up old photographs and having oh, yeah. them tell you the same yeah. story over and over again. Like my mom loves doing that, mm -hmm. you know? Well, that's... A, that's but it's a it's a system again, isn't it? You know, it's it's much cheaper and cost effective to give somebody a cheap generic drug than it is to employ people mm. to work with these people. It's much cheaper and easier. Yeah, it's almost like if we got visited by highly evolved beings from another planet, <laughs> one of the things that they would be kind of critical of of our culture is how the elderly are, are treated. Uh, the ones with the, the, the most amount of, of wisdom seem to have the least value in, in our society. It really is, a, Western culture is really a society and culture for young people. You know, it's, it's, about, it's about fame and it's about achievement and it's about, uh, you know, living your, your best life. And there's so many there's uh, through whether it's the social media, you know, marketing and, and, and those who really, you know, put themselves out there. It's like there's a worship of young, impulsive, stupid behavior at the expense of like the wisdom of elders. Yeah, it's almost like when you have no longer have any cultural value, we'll just drug you and forget about you. Yeah, but these people do have cultural value. They have a great deal to to add to to society and a great deal to contribute. And you know, we shouldn't be drugging our, our elderly in society. Yeah, I would say there's a lot we can learn from a lot of other cultures, especially Central America, a lot of the Asian countries, and even in some countries in Europe. Is the the importance of this this household of the generations of family raising one another. Because there's lessons that can be learned and that yeah. wisdom gets passed down to, to multiple generations. The things that a grandmother would say to you at a young age can stick with you for years and then you pass it on to the generation afterwards. I often reflect back on here in the United States why we've lost this way when it comes to diet and some of the medicinal benefits of certain meals and the way things are cooked. It's because we came here and we often didn't have that that grandmother or that grandfather with us, we, a lot of us immigrated in our 20s and then we were on our own trying to figure things out and we just kind of fell into this industrial country and we just had our own solutions. We lost out on that wisdom and now we're finding it through the internet, well, but we need to bring our grandparents back into the house self, and have them live with us. Self, <laughs> you talk about self-sufficiency and resiliency and those, those key things being gone in younger generations, not yeah. able to think for themselves. I think that you hit a very good point there. The, the families are kind of, you know, there's more and more families that are breaking apart. There's mm -hmm. more and more people that are putting their, exactly. they're putting more emphasis on, on, on work, you know, with their careers and things like that. But as you said, it's part of the system once again. Yeah. We're, we're a country yeah. of large Absolutely. empty and, homes. And I, and I think that if you, I think I, I write about it at the end of my book, you know, the, ph the pharmaceutical industry's next target market, market uh, is Asia Pacific. And that's the fastest growth up to, I think, 2027 projected. So I have a friend um, who is from Sri Lanka. 
And I talk to him a lot about, you know, my work and he, he laughs. He really laughs. We've been through this. We've been through that. We've, we've coped with this. What is wrong with you people? <laughs> Mind you, if we look at what's going, if we look at what's going on right now in Sri Lanka, they are having an awful lot to go through. That's right. But it, but again, yeah, it's, you know, it's a cultural perspective, isn't it? it? You know, it's how, how they, think they should try to deal with things before they turn to pharmaceutical drugs. I agree. Beverly, I was hoping that there's somewhat of an awakening that is occurring uh, worldwide with these drugs, but then I look at the numbers and I look at how many antidepressants are, are prescribed. Do you have any data on what's the, uh, how, many, how many antidepressants are currently being prescribed? Well, I think in, the, in England alone, we're up to 8.3 million people who take antidepressants. Um, I think the last statistics that I had, um, there are, I think, 45 million people in the States or around that who take antidepressants. Yeah, that, that's unbelievable. That's just how normalized it has become. And I think a take-home yeah. message here is there, there's no such thing as a magic pill, folks. And this pill comes with really potential for severe adverse consequences. And when we're talking about age ranges, when we're talking about those under the age of 25, likely based on the, on the rapid changes of that developmental stage and the rapid brain changes that occur, the adverse consequences are much, much greater. It is yeah. now time that you start asking very serious questions to your pediatricians, your primary care doctors, and your psychiatrists. One of the questions I want everybody to ask, especially to a psychiatrist or, or a GP, would you take this drug yourself? Would you prescribe this drug to your own child or adolescent, given the situations that they're going through right now? What are the adverse consequences? Ask those questions. I understand that there could be two and a half times greater likelihood of suicide compared to a placebo. And if we're talking about this drug predominantly having a placebo effect, why don't you just give them a sugar pill? Why not something else? You know, these are really important questions that you have to ask medical professionals because I think blind faith in the medical authority, you know, it's over. This time has ended and these are the, this is the type of book that you want to use as a resource because what it does is it provides very compelling accounts from real people whose lives have been harmed by prescription antidepressants. It provides very clear scientific data and evidence that there is no such thing as a magic pill. And we can no longer pretend otherwise because there are many people out there that have been on these drugs way beyond any period that they've been studied. And they need our help. We need study on future research on how to safely taper off these drugs and understand what type of supplements or ancillary treatment that can maybe relieve the symptoms of withdrawal. And more importantly, we have to prevent the next generation of going down a, a similar path. Yeah, absolutely. I think it's important that we remind everybody these drugs have an FDA black box warning for people under 25 in terms of efficacy and suicidality. If that's the case, why do we go to a doctor and have prescribed to our child or a young person in our family a drug that has an FDA black box warning? Great point. Yeah. Beverly, what, what do you have going on now? Is there another book uh, that you're starting to write? What other things are you doing professionally? Yeah, you'll love the title of this one. <laughs> it's, called, it's called The United State of Anxiety. Oh, the boy. good old USA. There you go. All right, let's end that conversation right now. I don't like being attacked. <laughs> The United States, it's about benzodiazepines primarily, but it, yeah, oh, the, the, the good old USA. Mm hmm yeah, unfortunately, we are leading the world in in this, in the prescription drug market and uh, a, a mental health problems. But it is unfortunately exactly what we see every day here in clinical practice. It's it's that yeah. it's that worry, it's that overwhelming fear that is certainly provoked by our media and it's provoked by our our government. You can understand why 
we have such yeah. a, uh, a mentally unwell nation right now. Where can yeah, and sorry, I you know I I think you know guys like yourselves who are inviting people like me to to be able to talk about our work and to talk about our experiences and most of all talk about you know the experiences of real people and I think that's where where change is going to happen um, the more we hear about the experiences of real people. No doubt. Beverly, uh, how can people find you? How can they buy your book? Um, they can find me on Twitter at antidepressed1. Um, they can buy my book on Amazon or at any major bookstore. Oh, sorry, book site. Not really bookstores now, are they? We don't really have many bookstores. Book sites. Um, yeah. Um, and I am launching um, a website very soon. So which will be called Antidepressed. And um, I hope that will help people and have lots of resources too. Great, Beverly. We really appreciate you coming on the program today. Yes, thank, thank you. Thank you so much for inviting me. It's really <laughs> nice to meet you all. Good to thank meet you, you, Beverly. Listening to a podcast may be therapeutic, but it is not therapy. Always seek the advice of your mental health professional. If you are in a crisis or you think you have an emergency, call your doctor or 911. If you are considering suicide, call 1-800-273-TALK to speak with a skilled, trained counselor. If you found this podcast interesting, please share it with a friend, subscribe through your podcast app, and engage with us through our social channels. And if you are concerned about a friend or family member, reach out. The six magic words I was just thinking about you may make their day. Thank you for listening.